What's shaking, everybody? This episode of the Golf Guide podcast is proudly presented to you by Pacific Coast Golf Guide magazine, the numero uno golf course directory magazine serving the Pacific Coast and all of the Western United States. Uh, you can find Pacific Coast Golf Guide magazine at over a thousand golf courses uh, across the West Coast. But if you're not able to get to one, or if maybe the uh, the, the golf course near you is uh, is fresh out. Fear not. You can uh, go to the show notes of this podcast, click on the link, and redeem a free subscription to Golf Guide Magazine. All you have to do is fill out a couple of questions about your golf game, provide us with a mailing address, and boom, when the new, ep- or when new episode, when the new issue of the magazine comes out early next spring, uh, you will have a copy sent directly to you at absolutely no cost. So visit the uh, the show notes of this podcast, click the link, get a free subscription to Pacific Coast Golf Guide Magazine, and if you enjoyed today's podcast with my guest Garrett Morrison uh, of the Fried Egg, who is absolutely sensational, provided some great inside insight, and uh, had a really really fun conversation with him, uh, Garrett may or may not be penning a piece in the 2020 edition of Pacific Coast Golf Guide magazine. So if you enjoy this podcast, all the more reason for you to go and uh, and get yourself a subscription or make sure you pick up a copy of Golf Guide uh, next year. So. Without any further delay, let's get into it. A really fun conversation with Garrett Morrison of the Fried Egg. Um, th- thank you to everybody again for, uh, for for listening. I really appreciate you guys uh, joining me, joining me, joining Garrett, and, and spending some time talking golf, and in this episode in particular, talking a little golf course architecture, and uh, it's, it's just really, really fun stuff. So um, I hope you guys all have a wonderful and happy Thanksgiving holiday with your families. This is an evergreen podcast. This one's going to be fun to listen to for whoever for for a year or two to come. So uh, without any further delay, here is another episode of the Golf Guide Podcast. Hi there, everybody. Welcome back to the program. Today, I am joined by uh, a guest that I am very, very excited to talk to. Uh, he's a gentleman whose work I have read uh, continuously uh, for, for many, many a months on the FriedEgg.com. Uh, he's their managing editor, Mr. Garrett Morrison. Garrett, it is a pleasure to have you, man. That uh, you know, it's, it's almost a little bit surreal. I mean, I, I don't know if you consider yourself to be a, a celebrity in the, uh, the golf journalism world, but for, for big dorks like me, I, I am honored to have you on, my friend. I appreciate that, Kyle. <laughs> I'm definitely not a celebrity, but uh, I appreciate the sentiment, and, and thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely, man. So, um, it, Garrett wrote an article on thefriday.com uh, a couple of weeks ago that, to me, just seemed like the perfect excuse uh, to reach out to him, ask him to come on the podcast so we could discuss this and um, a couple of other topics. But it's something that I had thought about um, multiple times, you know, over a decade plus and it was so awesome to see garrett put some time and some effort into really researching this topic um and and then basically put it into words where all of us could enjoy digest it and kind of analyze it and that is the the article the title of the article is should bunkers be intensively maintained and this is part of their just the yoke series where you know uh, people like us can reach out to garrett and the other folks at the fried egg and just ask a question and our mutual friend joe butcherboy shasky uh had (laughs) <laughs> a wonderful question so shout out to joe uh yeah, and, joe. and he asked why do bunkers have to be perfectly raked i just don't get the logic on numerous levels especially when a clean bunker lie can actually be easier 
than a shot than a shot like a tight chip. And the light bulb went off for me. And I guess Garrett, the first question I'll ask is when Joe brought this up, I, I know this had to have been something you guys had talked about and thought about previously, but I mean, when he asked the question, how excited were you to start researching, answering it? How, how many thoughts did you already have on this before Joe brought it up? Well, it was a great question and a great topic. I liked that the question had a perspective already, you know, because that's that's classic Joe Shasky. Yes, you know, exactly. He's going <laughs> to wear his heart and his opinions on his sleeve, and, and that's what we all love about him. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I completely agree with him right off the bat. You know, I, I had previously thought about the subject, played a lot of golf courses in my life where the bunkers seem to be even more lovingly maintained than the fairways and always thought that that was kind of backwards but at the same time i didn't know a huge amount about what goes into maintaining a bunker you know my my knowledge about maintenance issues about the issues that superintendents at golf courses deal with day in day out is really limited and so Part of what excited me about the question is that it was an opportunity to go talk to people who knew more than I did about the subject and to get their perspectives on it. Because maybe there was something I didn't understand about why it might be necessary or preferable for a golf course to maintain its bunkers in the way that we often are used to seeing them maintained in America. Um, maybe there was some reason that that was done beyond just trying to make things nice for players. And so, uh, so I was I was excited to reach out to some people that I knew would have a perspective on this, would have some information, um, and to kind of use their points of view in the article that I eventually wrote. And so, you know, initially, th- this just the yoke series that we do, where we answer reader questions, kind of came out of the mailbag idea. You mm-hmm. know, Andy Johnson um, has written a lot of mailbags where he gets questions on Twitter and and answers them in the form of a long kind of Bill Simmons style mailbag. And eventually what we started recognizing is that a lot of the questions deserved longer treatment. And so we were thinking for this, just the yoke series, okay, we can write 500 to 750 words, something like that in response to these questions. Well, obviously it's kind of gone beyond that. And the more I looked into specifically this bunker issue, the more I realized it's got to be something like a feature piece that I write about this because it is it is very interesting. So, uh, you know, really my first thought when Joe asked the question was, I'd like to know more about this. It's something that I feel like I have a strong opinion about, but that opinion might not be based on um, real knowledge. Um, and so the process from there was getting in touch with people who had real knowledge and um, and putting it together. Sure. So given all that information, where where was your first, you know, who, who did you reach out to at first? Because, I mean, I off, off the top of my head, if, if you were somebody that wasn't working inside the industry, I'm not really sure where you would go to find a resource to learn all this information unless you knew the superintendent at your local golf course and they could share, you know, experiences at their their track and, and you know, places they've worked in the past. But uh, for someone who does have the resources like yourself, where where was your initial starting point in terms of finding out some more information about this? Well, it was about reaching out to people that I already knew. You know, one of okay. the great things that's happened in the past year or so is I've started to work for the Fried Egg and to write about golf courses is that I've gotten to know more and more people in the turf community. Those are the people, superintendents, greenskeepers, are the people that I'm often in contact with when I'm going to see a course. 
when I go and play a private course, it's not, I'm not necessarily always playing with members. I'm not always communicating with members. Mm-hmm. Usually the point of contact is the superintendent. Sure. Uh, those are the people who we tend to get in touch with and who uh, show us the courses <clears throat> and are able to give us the best um, information about those courses. Uh, and so as I've gone and seen different courses in different parts of the country, I've started to kind of, uh, you know, sort of un- unintentionally develop this network of superintendent friends. Sure. Um, and, and that's just been a wonderful thing. It, it's been probably the best part of my year in uh, kind of building a, a community in, in this new job, uh, getting to know people in the turf community. So um, that was where I went first. You know, I, I just reached out to a couple of superintendents that I knew and and started asking questions. Um, and ultimately, the uh, the superintendent that I ended up interviewing for the article was Austin Daniels, who is the superintendent at Monterey Pines Golf Course in Monterey, mm-hmm. California. Love Monterey and, Pines. Yeah, and, and Monterey Pines is great. Super underrated course, affordable. Um, it's a true local course, you know, not many courses in Monterey. I live there for five years, right? Mm-hmm. Not many courses in Monterey are, are truly for locals, right? Most right. of the courses are for vacationers mm-hmm. and are priced for vacationers. Monterey Pines is a course that serves the local community, especially the local military community. And they do a great job of it. You know, it's a fun course where every hole is distinct and then on top of that, it's incredibly well-maintained for the price point. It really is. Uh, like I get the sense in talking to other supers in the Monterey area that they're somewhat in awe of what uh, Austin Daniels and his crew are able to do at Monterey Pines on a limited budget with a very limited staff. Um, they just create great conditions. The course looks awesome. Um, and it's one of those courses that's, that's really manicured, right? Um, mm-hmm. Again, especially for its price point. The bunkers are are raked and well edged and crisp, and there's just that kind of look to the course. And so, what I wanted to dig into with Austin Daniels was, how do you create those conditions? First of all, in bunkers, what does it take to make a bunker look and play like that? And then the larger philosophical question is, why do you do it? Why do bunkers need to be that way? Um, you know, and ultimately his answer was, well, it's because the players expect it, even at a course like Monterey Pines, if the bunkers are rough and have footprints in them and, uh, aren't maintained in the way that we maintain them, golfers are going to, are going to complain. And, and the way that they've developed those bunkers at Monterey Pines over the past few years, that's garnered them a lot of praise and appreciation from the local golfers. Um, and so you know, that was kind of our conversation. That was the starting point of the article, really, was that perspective from a superintendent at a local course who does a fantastic job and who has kind of pressure on him to maintain bunkers intensively. Um, and from there, I, I reached out to a few other people trying to get a variety of perspectives, uh, eventually got in touch with George Waters, who's the uh, manager of green section education at the USGA, somebody mm-hmm. who's written maybe more than anybody about bunkers. He has a whole book called Sand and Golf. I knew that he would have uh, an informed perspective, uh, and he's worked with a lot of different superintendents in a lot of different places and, and just knows 
stuff from a macro perspective better than anybody. Um, and then I talked to uh, Rob Collins at Sweetens Cove, the mm-hmm. owner and the architect of Sweetens Cove. Um, I just knew that Sweetens Cove, you know, they, they don't have bunker rakes set out for golf golfers. And the expectations for what bunkers are at Sweetens Cove are just different. And I was curious from Rob's perspective as the as the custodian of that course, how did he develop a culture where golfers are not expecting bunkers to be perfect? Um, and so those three perspectives are the ones that the article is based on. Um, and so if, if that kind of answers the question, yeah. that's, uh, once I talked to those three people, that was the article. That's fascinating. So okay, kind of going back when you initially started reaching out to the superintendents, what was, I mean, was there a common reaction when you told them what you were working on? Was it a kind of, geez, it's about damn time. Yeah, man, we talk about this all the time. Or was it something that they, I, I, I can only imagine this is something that a lot of superintendents do feel pretty passionately about, considering that it, you know, seemingly occupies so much of their workday and so much of their time and resources that they they can't love that the expectations for bunkers in 2019 is what you know is what it is. I mean, what was your what was your feel on how supers reacted to you pursuing this kind of story? I think they were glad to hear that somebody was writing about it. Um, (laughs) I, I think there was that reaction, like, oh man, this is a uh, a big part of my job and a major reality in golf course maintenance that people don't really know about or have a lot of uh, kind of partial information about. And so they were happy to talk to me and, and you know, maybe a little anxious that I would get it wrong, but <laughs> um, of course, very forthcoming with information. I don't think I've ever met a superintendent who is anything less than generous with me mm-hmm. uh, in, in trying to teach me what um, they do. And what their jobs are like, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that their point of view would be that this is a, a big part of what green staffs do, and it's something that golfers don't think about that much. And moreover, not just you know everyday golfers or or most golfers. It's something that people who are interested in golf courses and write about golf courses don't think about that much. Mm-hmm. You know, often we're going to be focusing on the design of the course or who the architect is, or if we if we pay attention to anything maintenance related, it's often going to have to do with the firmness of the turf, right? The firmness right. of the fairways, the firmness of the greens. That that kind of stuff is is more of a common topic among architecture nerds or golf course nerds than bunkers are right um and so yeah there was a kind of sense of relief or like oh yeah this is a really good subject this is something that you should talk about in depth and and try to get right interesting was there any did you talk to anybody that i guess i don't know exactly quite how to phrase this but did you talk to any superintendents who didn't really who thought everything was kind of fine that thought that you know the way that it is right now seems to be just fine or they just didn't really have an opinion or was it almost unanimous that most superintendents and, and people that you talked to said there was some sort of an issue between expectations and the reality of actually presenting bunkers in the way that people want them to be i'd say it was pretty unanimous that okay. superintendents recognized that ec- golfer expectations were a major force in driving bunker maintenance and that there was a significant cost related with those related to those expectations, but not all the superintendents I talked to said this is a bad thing. 
you know, Austin Daniels, I think his, his take on it is not that this is a terrible thing that's happened to me. You know, he's just like, this is what golfers want. And my job is to, is to give them that is to present that to them. And you know what? He's totally right. Um, you know, Monterey Pines is not in a position. It's not in a location where they can take a kind of Sweetens Cove route or tobacco road route. You know, they need to present their bunkers in the way that the regulars at that course want them to be presented. Mm -hmm. Austin recognizes that and he's neutral about it. He's like, this is what they want. I'm not in a place to judge it. I'm just going to do my best to, to give them what they want. And you know what? He does a fantastic job of it. And, and I think that he should be recognized and praised for that at the same time from, you know, from my perspective, from the golfer's perspective, uh, you know, I'm not a superintendent, right? So I don't have to necessarily accept golfers expectations. Um, I would rather see those expectations shift a little bit and, and I want to do what I can to persuade people that this is not how bunkers have to be at every course. Mm-hmm. Yep, I completely agree. And actually, I, I've got a whole big thing in my notes here about uh, what we can do to alter expectations, all that stuff. But I do want to actually uh, just jump back here a quick moment. So um, in the three people that you spoke to primarily for this article, it was Austin at Monterey Pines, um, George Waters with the USGA, and then Rob Collins at Sweetens Cove. What, quick aside, I've actually never had an opportunity to talk to or meet George Waters before, but from what I understand, he was on the staff of Tom. He was on Tom Doak's staff when they built what is probably like one of my three or four favorite golf courses on the in the entire world. So, if you ever get a chance to talk to George again, could you let him know that Etna Springs, if it ever opens back up again, will be so appreciated by all of us who live in the northern bay north bay area oh yeah i i I love etna springs too etna spring etna springs was a big deal to me because it was just when i was getting back into golf and just getting interested in golf course design again Mm -hmm. um my my wife's parents at the time lived in santa rosa yes and i um when we visited them one time i I realized that Etna Springs was basically within driving distance. And mm-hmm. one day I was like, Hey, can I, you know, can I take half a day to go out and, and play this golf course? And, and so just one morning early in the morning, I went out and I, I played Etna Springs and just walked around. There was nobody out there except for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's out in Northern Napa wine country. And I was looking around and thinking this might be the best nine hole course I've ever played. Yeah, I, I can't believe what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it it struggled, and right now it's closed. But I guess there's some hope of it uh, getting back open again. Yes, and and I, you know, I have uh, I, I do stay in contact with some folks that uh, have worked there over the you know over the years. And the last that I heard was the tentative plan was to reopen the golf course when the new ownership completes the renovations for the health and wellness resort that they're going to convert um, everything into. The tentative plan is to reopen the golf course, but what's what's wild is that they, that was not the plan originally. But there was such an outcry and such a, a mobilization of golfers around the area that you know were very adamant that this is a really really special golf course. And you know, I mean, not only do we want it, you know, from a selfish perspective because we want to play it, but as as the person who owns this land, you'd just be doing yourself a, a crazy disservice. I mean, this is this is something that could be really beneficial, could attract a lot more people to your resort uh, if it was, you know, a, a recreational option. And I think it, that did have an effect. And so, 
Again, the last I heard is that there's a better than 50% chance that the golf course will open either in 2020 or 2021. So for me, that's really exciting. And honestly, I, I, if it does reopen, I, I would love to either ho- to host you and Andy or anybody to come out because, like you said, I, I grew up playing Northwood. You know, I, I grew up, it was born and raised in Sonoma County, and Northwood has always been one of my favorite places to play golf. And luckily with social media, especially, you know, guys like Andy and everybody's put, highlighted Northwood, it is now getting the recognition it deserves as not just one of the best nine-hole courses in the country, but one of the most surreal and special golf experiences in America. And I actually get that same feel from Etna Springs. And it's crazy that there's two of those nine-hole golf courses just in such a small area of the country. But uh, I, I felt exactly the same way you did, man. So I, I apologize. Not, not to go off on a quick tangent, but it, I, I do believe George was one of the people that made Etna right. happen. So I wanted to make sure I yeah. gave him a, a huge shout-out and, and a thank you. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he's worked on a lot of interesting sites, has on-the-ground experience. Uh, and, yeah, obviously the work at Etna was was of the highest level. Oh, God, it's so good. Um, but then Rob Collins, uh, being the third guy you talked to now – You've mentioned that, you know, at Sweetens Cove, they do things a little bit differently. For any of those folks uh, listening to this podcast who have not had an opportunity to read your article yet, um, Sweetens Cove is one of those few public golf courses that has, you know, taken an alternative approach to bunker maintenance. So, first of all, I guess, would you mind sharing with me and all the listeners what exactly Rob and his staff are doing out there and how, you know, from your experience and your research, how has that resonated with the golfers who do go and play Sweetens Cove? Sure. Sweetens Cove is a nine-hole course out in Tennessee, um, kind of kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, of course, it's become, if you're on social media, you've heard of Sweetens Cove. It gets a lot of attention. Yes. I think some people are getting annoyed with how much attention it gets, but <laughs> whatever, it's okay. Uh, the, the social media buzz has definitely helped that course survive. So sure. if, people are, if people are worried about the Sweetens Cove If social Cove media is helping golf courses stay open, then I'm okay yeah. with it. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, some people have a problem with it, but whatever. Um, uh, but in any case, uh, at Sweetens Cove, one of the, one of the, uh, features of that golf course is that they have a ton of bunkers and they have a limited maintenance staff, um, and a limited budget. They don't charge much to play there. And so the thought process for Rob Collins and his co-designer, Tad King was, okay, if we're going to build a golf course with this many bunkers, we, we better not expect them to be perfectly maintained all the time. So what are some of the things that we can do to help golfers realize that part of the experience at this course is that the bunkers might be a little rough, the sand might be a little rough? Um, well, they decided not to have rakes set out um, in the bunkers for golfers to use as they play the course. And I think that's actually a powerful move for shaping golfer expectations because mm-hmm. if you don't see rakes, you're looking around and you're like, okay, well, that's the reason why the bunkers are a little rough. And so I'm going to do some other things when I go in a bunker or when I exit a bunker to kind of care for the course. You know, I'm going to like maybe use my foot to kind of swipe over my divot and then I'll just leave it. You know, there are footprints in the bunker. That's okay. Um and, and so that's the big move is that there aren't bunker rakes set out for players to use during the round. Now, um, generally, the expectation at Sweetens Cove is that the bunkers serve as hazards. And so when you check in for your round, you are told bunkers play as waste areas. Every bunker plays as a waste area. They're hazards. You can expect them to be, you know, not perfectly manicured. Um, and then the bunkers themselves are designed in such a way 
where that kind of fit, where the, the disturbed sand, as I call it in the article, fits with the edges of the bunkers, which are very weathered and have these kind of profusions of native grasses and, um, you know, uh, gnarly railroad ties. And, you know, they just look kind of rough and mm -hmm. overall. Um, and so the unraked sand kind of fits with that. Now, of course, the bunkers are maintained by the maintenance staff. The maintenance staff does put time into the bunkers. They rake them every day, in fact, uh, I believe. And so, and when there's when there's rain, when there's flooding, you know, it's, the course is in a place that, that does get some flooding. Of course, the maintenance staff has to work hard to recover the bunkers and, and keep them in relatively good playing shape. So it's not that the maintenance staff ignores the bunkers. But because golfers go there not expecting the bunkers to be perfect, there's not as much pressure on the maintenance staff to rake them perfectly or present them perfectly every single day. And that has a big impact on what the maintenance staff is able to prioritize. You know, normally for a greenskeeping staff, the bunkers are going to be toward the top of the priority list, right up there with greens, right? Right. But at Sweetens Cove, because the expectations that golfers bring to that course are different, the bunkers don't have to be quite as high a priority, and the crew can focus on greens and surrounds con conditioning a little bit more. And what you get at Sweetens Cove is, is really outstanding greens and surrounds conditioning. It's firm. It, it rolls really well. It plays really well. It's fun. And I think that part of the reason they're able to do that is that they're able to prioritize it. Um, and so that's the big story for me out of Sweetens Cove is that although it's not as though the bunkers are unmaintained, of course, the crew puts a lot of effort into maintaining them and, and keeping them in good playing condition the simple shift in golf for expectations about the quality and consistency of the sand that they find in the bunkers has an impact on the priorities of the maintenance crew and positively impacts what the maintenance crew is able to do in other parts of the golf course. Sure. And when we said, I guess, people who go to play Sweetens have, you know, different expectations than they would at a lot of other golf courses, do you think that's the case before they even start their journey to Sweetens Cove? Or is that something that is kind of presented to them and, and you know, I don't want to say explained to them, but something they become aware of when they get there and they're about to tee off? Or do you think long before people head to the golf course, they're expecting rugged bunkers that really function as hazards more so than sand traps? I think that there's probably a mixture. Okay. You know, I, I think that... There, you know, Sweetens Cove is attracting a lot more golfers now than it used to. I think that there's probably a variety of of expectations that golfers bring to that course. And for golfers who don't really have knowledge about what they're going to find in the bunkers, it's probably useful that when they check in, they're given the quick rundown on it. <clears throat> sure. And maybe not all golfers really like it. <laughs> you know, like yeah. certainly Sweetens is is a polarizing course. There are people who who don't like it very much, um, and that's that's part from part of uh, part of why it's a an interesting course to me is that it does polarize people a little bit and and generate passionate opinions one way or the other. Uh, at the same time, I think 
if you compare it to a course like Monterey Pines, local course that has regulars and a pretty pretty substantial population center nearby, um, Sweetens is so different. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. it's significantly a destination course. It's yes. it's out in the middle of nowhere. You have to, and people who go play it are often on a pilgrimage. And if you're going on a pilgrimage to Sweetens Cove, if you're coming from the West Coast to go to Sweetens Cove, then I bet you know exactly what to <laughs> expect there, right? And and that's a huge advantage for Sweetens Cove in a lot of ways because it just attracts golfers who already know a little bit about the course and are already bought in to some of the adventurous aspects of the course, whether that's the extremely severe greens and surrounds contouring mm-hmm. or the unraked bunkers. Sure. And so Sweetens is in, I think, a unique position to shape golfer expectations as opposed to catering them for that reason, because it is a destination course and the people who come from far-flung places to play it probably already have some knowledge about it and don't even really need to be told what to expect in the bunkers already kind of want embrace that experience um now as i said earlier i don't think that's everybody you know that there's no sort of uniform way to characterize the a population of people who plays any course but Sweetens is definitely in a better position than Monterey Pines to push at the boundaries of what golfers normally expect from a from a course. And to their credit, to Sweetens Code's credit and to Rob Collins's credit, they're taking advantage of that position right now um, in order to kind of do the things that they want to do on the golf course. They're they're not they're not pandering um, and they're presenting the golf course exactly how they want to now to get to that position to even survive Mm -hmm. they had to do a lot of work right it's it's not a it's not a model that every golf course can follow because you know for years it seemed like sweetens cove was going to go bankrupt um and uh but now they're in a pretty good pretty good situation and they can continue to um, use the maintenance practices that they've been using all along and serve as a model for other courses uh, that you know might not be in as good a position to uh, to do radical things, but you know uh, they can they can kind of serve as a as a way to educate golfers about what this kind of golfing experience is like. The hope is that golfers go home after that and say, you know what, I just saw this great golf course out in Tennessee. It's one of the best respected courses in the country. They have rough bunkers. You know why? Why isn't that good enough for us? That's the hope. Yeah. Well, okay. W- without turning this into too much of a sweet and scope call, even, I- I've actually never been there, so I, I-, I got to pick your brain here a little bit. Uh, aside from the actual bunkers themselves, is the conditioning at Sweetens Cove? W- would you say on par, or would you say better than what you would find at your average municipal public golf course where greens fees are, you know, between twenty and fifty dollars? It's better. Um, it's better. The turf, okay. yeah, the turf is better, more consistent, and and all that stuff. Okay, yeah, so definitely. So, g- given that fact, do you think, uh, obviously, with the the focus of this article being on you know bunker maintenance and trying to prioritize time and resources to other parts of the golf course and letting the bunkers sort of do their own thing, is that? And and again, you may have sort of answered this, you know, with just a few minutes ago, but 
is the model that Sweetens Cove using, you know, I guess, is that practical at a lot of other courses? Not so much in terms of changing expectations, but do you think if most municipal golf courses or golf courses with daily fee, greens fees below $50, if those golf courses spent, you know, 60% less time focusing on bunkers and reallocated that time to maintaining other parts of the golf course, do you think the conditioning that you see at Sweetens Cove is something that's replicable in a lot of other golf courses, or is that, you think, just unique to Sweetens given the, the, the land that it sits on? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and honestly, I'm not sure. Um, I don't think it's perfectly replicable to every course. Okay. I certainly don't think that. And one of the reasons is that the bunkers being maintained the way they are at Sweetens Cove was part of the design concept from the beginning. Okay. You know, if you go to Monterey Pines and just say, we're, we're going to take away the bunker rakes, and then you look at the bunkers at the end of the day, they're not going to look cool. <laughs> you know, they're going <laughs> uh, like, to, the, the, you're right. They're going to look beat up. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe the bunkers at a place like Sweetens or, or we should make tobacco road part of this conversation too. Okay. tobacco road takes a, a similar approach. Oh, they do. Okay. Um, yeah. The bunkers there too at tobacco road are, are super gnarly and, and, and weathered in their overall concept. So again, the, the, the disordered sand really works with that. But if you put the same kind of, you know, rough and tumble sand, in the bunkers at Monterey Pines, it's going to look weird because you have these edges that are clean and shapes that are kind of smooth, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have, have have you know messy sand. It's not going to fit in the same way. Sure. There's not going to be an overall aesthetic that that works there. Uh, and so that's one big factor is that you know in order to maintain bunkers in this way i think that you have to design them that way and not all courses have the luxury of going back and completely redesigning their bunkers um so that's one factor but i do think that there are a variety of things that courses can do to save time and money on bunker maintenance there's a lot of in between there there's there's this whole range between augusta national and tobacco road, right? It's not like it's one or the other. Right. There are a variety of approaches that greenskeeping crews can take to reduce maintenance in their bunkers in the space between those two extremes. Um, George Waters has written about various options like these before, whether it's you know not raking the faces of the bunkers, just raking the bottoms of them, there's all sorts of things that you can do to save on bunker maintenance. But in order to save on bunker maintenance, uh, you know, anytime you, you save a little bit of time or money keeping up the bunkers, you have to communicate that to golfers and golfers have to adjust their assumptions about what bunkers should be, you know? So it's not like you're going to say all of a sudden we're going to go, we're going to look like tobacco road. It's like, no, okay. So let's do make a small alteration to our approach to, to save some time that we can devote elsewhere to the course. Well, each time you do that, the bunkers are going to be a little bit less consistent, a little bit less rough. You know, they're not going to go full sweetens cove necessarily, but they're not going to quite be what you're used to. Um, and I think that we would be better off, that the game would be better off, that golf courses would be better off if golfers were prepared to accept 
some of those alterations and to see bunkers as true hazards and, uh, you know, to see them as, as things that don't need to be perfectly maintained all the time. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about. I'm not saying go to your local municipal course and, uh, and, and, and say, you know, now we're going to be Pine Valley, uh, and, and we're not going to have, we're not going to have rakes <laughs> available to golfers. Um, I, I think that you just have to look at each individual course as its own case, communicate with the maintenance staff and ask, what are some things that we can do to, uh, to scale back bunker maintenance? And would that help other areas of the course? Um, and if you, if there are some solutions there, if there are some ideas that the crew has, then, then it becomes a question of, uh, shaping the expectations and assumptions of the golfers who play the course. Um, and so that's the conversation that I'm interested in starting and, and pressing is, uh, you know, why, why do we assume our bunkers have to look like Augusta national? Um, and, uh, and putting that out there so that, you know, golfers can accept a variety of presentations of bunkers. Sure. Um, so uh, assuming that, you know, the people in the golf industry, that you, you are, are doing a great job and, you know, it's kind of spearheading this and ho- hopefully, um, you know, uh, other people follow suit. And uh, assuming that, you know, the golf industry as a whole does a good job of communicating that, you know, this is something that would be advantageous to the golfer's overall experience because so you know, the rest of the golf course would benefit so much that it would outweigh you know, the inconvenience, I guess you could say, of having a little bit more of a, a rugged bunker. Assuming all those systems were in place, um, uh, to, to steal a phrase from Mike Kaiser here, do you think the retail golfer in America can and would buy into it if it was just briefly you know, mentioned to them at the golf course or explained to them? Or do you think the over the years the expectation of those perfect bunkers actually just no matter how much education you provide that you know golfers may just say no this is what i like i mean is do you think it is really possible you know on a large scale to really alter those golfers expectations yeah i think it's possible i think it'll take a long time and that it won't be easy and that it probably won't happen <laughs> but of course it's possible you know sure. like <laughs> you know we've gotten to this place and in, in the in the first you know bunkers weren't always this way right. right golfers in the in the 1860s and 70s were used to the notion of bunkers that weren't maintained at all that were just like these these mm-hmm. you know sandy scrapes in the lynx land and that was fine um, you know, golfers carried an entire club that was devoted to digging the ball out of cart tracks. Um, you know, like, <laughs> come on. Uh, of course, over time, golfers' expectations ha- have changed a lot. And what that means is that they can change back, right? Uh, you know, over, over time, more and more, we've become used to more manicured golf courses, but it doesn't have to keep going that direction. Uh, and the overall message from history, I think, is that golfers' expectations are malleable um, and that they, they move with the times and that we have a responsibility to push them in directions that will be beneficial to the game and that will make the game more sustainable, um, which I think that scaled-back bunker maintenance overall would. It would make the game more sustainable and sure. financially and environmentally. So, um, yeah, so of course I think that things can change, uh, because things have always been changing through history, 
but that's not to say that it's necessarily going to happen, you know, like, right. uh, you know, I realize that individually I, I don't have that much influence on what Mike Kaiser calls the retail golfer, <laughs> uh, the retail golfer, uh, most retail golfers haven't heard of the fried egg or yeah, right. haven't been on Twitter and, and don't care about what I'm saying, of course. Um, nah, don't and, say yourself uh, short, man. Well, I, I, mean, <laughs> I think that's true, though. Uh, yeah. But in any case, it's uh, yeah, so. So, of course, I, I realize that there's um, that, that it probably won't change, at least right away. Uh, but I think it can. And I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, there, there's some momentum gathering. Uh, one of the sources of hope for me is that more and more golfers broadly in the mainstream are becoming aware of courses like the ones at Bandon Dunes or Sand Valley, these destination resorts where you get a different kind of golf experience in America. And uh, the maintenance practices at these courses are very different from what you find at the local country club or even at the local municipal course. Mm -hmm. um, there are ideas like bunkers aren't perfectly consistent and don't guarantee a, an immediate out so more and more golfers are are starting to see those as examples of great golf courses they're going to bandon dunes and thinking this is the greatest golf course uh, i've ever played right or these are the greatest golf courses i've ever played mm -hmm. and um and i think that's starting to penetrate penetrate the mainstream mindset of golfers a little bit and i think it's really changing things broadly so I, I do think that there's hope that, you know, uh, mindsets will shift toward a, a more kind of sustainable thing in, in the future, but we'll see. Yeah. You know? No, I, I mean, I, I could not, uh, I could not agree more, man. I, I know when I made my first trip to Bannon, uh, back when I was 18 years old, I, I, I looked at that place and, and this is having been to, been fortunate enough to been to Scotland with my dad a few years prior. Uh, you know, I was like this, this is what golf is really supposed to be. This, it just feels right. And I, I guess this is a great way to kind of segue into, you know, kind of what we've been talking about this whole time we mentioned earlier in that, I guess, what's the course of action? So we, we hit on that. The reason that the bunkers are the way they are today is mostly because of golfers' expectations. It's what they expect them to be. Um, and so we, we've touched on a little bit already, but in your opinion, I mean, what are what are some of the core and primary steps or you know things we in the golf community can do and especially as people in the golf media the people that relay the relay this information to the actual retail golfer I mean, what what do you think that we can do to actually make this something that happens on a large scale um i, I know you touched on professional golf in your article which by the way if you want to mention something about that at that 2006 memorial tournament i found that to be fascinating um, but I, I wonder, what, where do you think it starts, and what do you think would be the most effective way to begin to alter these expectations? Well, I have an idea for that, but uh, just to touch on the pro golf element really sure. quickly, the um, memorial tournament, Jack Nicholas's tournament at Muirfield Village in 2006, and Andy reminded me of this when I was, when I was writing the article, um, uh, Jack decided to put out you know, sort of Oakmont style wooden rakes with, with, uh, thicker prongs. And, and basically it just made the bunkers really hard to get out of. It's a great power and, move. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. And it, it changed things. Players weren't getting up and down as easily. 
and players actually talked about shifting tactics because they did not want to be especially in the fairway bunkers and so they they totally they changed the way that they were playing off the tee the winner of the event carl Pedersen, said that i used more three woods off the tee than i normally would have because i just really didn't want to be in those bunkers anymore of course, there was an outcry among the players. This is unfair. Uh, of course, there was the usual the usual chorus <laughs> of complaints that you get when you try to do anything like this at the pro level. And the next year, the normal rakes were back. But it just shows how much of an impact that adjusted maintenance practices can have. Now, obviously, they were still raking the bunkers. It's not like they were leaving them rough. But the idea for this came from Jack Nicholas's sense that bunkers over time have become places that you want to be. And he was like, back when I was playing in the 60s and 70s, when I was in my heyday, bunkers were inconsistent. You didn't know what to expect, and it, it, it made it so that you didn't want to be in there. And so this was his way of trying to create some semblance of that. And obviously, it wasn't accepted. But I think that one possible area of influence, as it always has been an influence, is pro golf. If there are more courses where you see on TV that the bunkers are rougher and you get used to that look, then I think that that could have a huge influence because I think that TV has been a major mover in shaping what golfers expectations for bunkers are. Now Mm -hmm. you see the bunkers on the PGA tour and they are flawless, you know, perfect lies all the time. It's a sensation and a scandal when there's a fried egg, you know, it's like (laughs) how unfair is that? Um, and, and so what you expect is that these players are going to get up and down most of the time out of bunkers. Sand safe percentages are stunning yes. on tour. What the leaders on tour are somewhere around like 65% sand saves. So crazy. Uh, that's, that's, I mean, that's... like you might as well, you might as well just be on, uh, you know, probably be harder actually on, on tight turf, but, yeah. uh, it, you know, the bunker is a place where you want to be. And if you're a good player, I think y- you know this, like I'm not that good of a player, but I'm you know, I do have a comfort level in bunkers because I know I can kind of swing hard at it. I don't have to be overly precise in a well-maintained bunker. I kind of know that if I, you know, just use decent technique and uh, stay down through the shot, that the ball is going to kind of pop out. I have to be much more precise when I'm on inconsistent turf or on firm turf. Um, And so, you know, bunkers have become a place that you want to be uh, if you're a good player and especially if you're a professional, um, the courses that they're playing on TV just have, have flawless bunkers. And, and so if that starts to change a little bit, well, I bet golfer expectations are going to change along with it. So that's one possible area of top-down influence. But what I'd be really interested in seeing, and of course I don't know how this comes about on a widespread level, you know, as as people who write articles and do podcasts and stuff like this, we're hoping that the things that we're trying to communicate do have uh, some kind of you know influence beyond our local communities. I guess that's why we would even publish a podcast or publish an article. We're hoping that people in other places read them or listen to them and mm-hmm. uh, and think things through. Um, so that that's part of obviously what we're trying to do. But I admit that it's uh, as I did earlier that that you know that's not going to be the thing that really makes historical change what what really needs to happen is that people need to start talking to greenskeepers people need to start talking to superintendents having real conversations with them really listening to their expertise and respecting what they're saying you know um 
because it's such an incredible fund of knowledge. Uh, somebody who is on a golf course day in, day out, dealing with the little problems that come up, uh, you know, coming up with a, uh, a a work routine for a staff and seeing what it takes to keep the different parts of the golf course in the condition that the players expect it to be. I mean, that's such an incredible resource that I think very few golfers really draw on. So we need to start talking to superintendents. We need to start respecting them and listening to what they have to say. Um, and maybe they'll say some things that we don't expect. Maybe they'll say some things that, that challenge us or that uh, make us uh, feel as though we wish we didn't talk to them. But that's, that's what we've got to do because uh, they're the ones who really know. Yeah. And if your superintendent is telling you, in order to make this work, we've got to scale back bunker maintenance, and here are some of the ways that we can do that, you have got to listen and uh, and and try to communicate it to the other people who are who are playing your course. Um, so that's that's for me the big one. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that just comes out of my personal experience talking to supers, who just you know that they've they've taught me so much over the over the past year. And I still have a lot to learn from them. And I just, I don't think that all that many golfers have really had long conversations with the people who take care of their courses. I think that needs to happen more. Totally. Now, as somebody who, by the way, everybody, if you don't follow Garrett on Twitter, he's a great Twitter follow. Um, so be someone who is familiar with the social media landscape like yourself, Garrett, I, I can only assume that you're familiar with that meme of the guy sitting at the table and like some university quad and then people put in whatever phrase and then he says, change my mind. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Whenever you were explaining that, I just had this thought in my head, how great would it be if every Muni, one Saturday every month, the super just sat at a little table right in front of the golf shop and just said, bunkers are supposed to be difficult. Change my mind. And just let anybody <laughs> walk up to him and ask him anything they want. Do you, I, obviously, oh, yeah. I'm being a little facetious, but is that, you know, something kind of like that where they are open and available to people just coming to play the golf course and can just ask them questions and stuff like that. Is, is that sort of what you're referring to or just have it where, you know, people can reach out to an email super. I mean, both I think would be incredibly valuable, but I think actually having a superintendent, a golf course be customer facing because they really are, you know, the most important member of any golf course staff that you really never have any interaction with. I mean, do you think, that it the face to face contact itself is something that would be really beneficial in kind of you know, hitting this point home. I, I do think so, and and you're right that it's to facilitate that is a complicated problem in itself because superintendents are really busy. It's crazy, you crazy know? busy. Yeah, if you're gonna if you're gonna go tell a superintendent at a busy public course that he needs to take two hours out of his day to go sit and, and talk to golfers, <laughs> that that might not be well received by all superintendents <laughs> for very understandable reasons. It would make a great meme though. It would make a great meme. And, uh, and, and, man, you know, and those conversations are tough for superintendents too, because they're yeah. dealing with people who think that they can do their jobs better oh. than the superintendent can. Superintendent's um, jobs that, are so hard. It's so I, crazy when you talk to them how much goes into it. It's so wild. Really? It's, yeah. And, and, and it's got to be frustrating because the level of expertise that you need to know in order to maintain a golf course at an acceptable level mm-hmm. is extreme. And uh, very few golfers are literate in, in greenskeeping issues. I've written a couple of articles on greenskeeping issues. I, I'm not literate in, in, in this stuff mm-hmm. at all because it's, it's a discipline. And so, you know, I, I, I think those kinds of conversations are tough for superintendents because 
uh, it's it's not what they were necessarily trained to do, and I bet it can be really frustrating. But um, you know, and, and and so I would hope that golfers would try to initiate some of those conversations themselves. That the golfers would take it on themselves to respectfully approach uh, greenskeeping staff and and ask them what they think instead of telling them things. Come at it from a perspective of I want to educate myself by. Uh, asking for information and opinions from a really informed source. Um, I would hope that golfers would initiate those conversations. Um, you know, every time I've reached out to a superintendent and asked for some education in a respectful way, I have gotten wonderfully gracious responses. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, but you've just, never have to presume that you know the subject better you, you can't bring biases to the conversation you can't bring a sense that you know to the conversation uh, and i think that makes a big difference but uh as for kind of formally arranged times to have uh, supers talk to golfers i i don't know i don't know how that would work yeah i just uh i think that we need to initiate those conversations though and you know what at at private clubs that are well-funded, superintendents often are kind of customer-facing. Sure. Um, you, know, you find that uh, you know, they are really well-respected and have a lot of communication with members, a lot of communication with them, maybe right. more than, than they would want. <laughs> but uh, uh, but that's, that's a situation where there are plenty of funds and that the superintendent doesn't necessarily need to be out on the golf course at all times, which somebody like Austin Daniels, I you know, he does a great job communicating with people. He's incredible. I think he works really hard, but uh, he's out on the golf course an awful lot because he has to be, he has right. to be one of the people who is out there doing work. Um, and, um, and so, you know, it's, it's tough to add those extra hours of communication to the job, especially when it's not necessarily what you're trained to do. Sure. I as somebody who, even more so than myself, is you know loves and is passionate and works you know in the field of golf course architecture, um, what kind of alternatives or solutions have you found? Do you think that might be suitable? Because I mean, I don't know if it's been the past couple of decades, but it seems to me like if golf courses are having a tough time maintaining bunkers to the expectation level that golfers have, the most common solution is to simply get rid of the bunker. It's just right. to, just to fill it in and and turn into rough. I, now, granted, as as I'm as I'm saying this, I'm just thinking, well, what if it was a greenside bunker that maybe they filled in, but then they turned it into some really tight turf? That actually, to me, would be a great solution if if you're looking for an alternative. But I I don't think that really is an option at a lot of other golf courses. So I I don't know. Is there any, you know, is there any alternative other than at Sweetens Cove? Obviously, they turn all the bunkers into waste areas, but they still maintain them. Uh, aside from filling the bunkers in and getting rid of them all together. Is there any, I don't know, is there really a solution that could keep the architectural integrity of, of the golf hole while being something that's not a, you know, a, a sand, a sand bunker per se? Sure. There are other options. I mean, obviously there are bunkerless golf courses out there. Next year, Sheep Ranch at Bandon Dunes is definitely going to start a conversation about grass bunkers or, you know, I would expect those bunkers out there to be kind of a mixture of hard packed sand and kind of thatchy turf mm -hmm. and they'll be really interesting. They'll definitely be hazards for good players. I bet it'll be harder to get out of them. Oh, that sure. should be to get out of a normal. Absolutely. Bunker. Um, and, and so there's, there, there are, there are a number of options for what a hazard like that can, can look like. You know, I've, I've often thought that, 
bunkers in golf evolved naturally. They evolved because the first golf courses were on sandy soil by the sea. And, you know, the bunkers would often be in places where golfers hit a lot of shots and took a lot of divots and eventually uh, developed into these kind of sandy scrapes. Mm-hmm. And, and those were those were bunkers. And they were often in good positions because they, they were where golfers would often end up. Uh, and so you'd kind of have to play around them strategically. Sure. Uh, and, and so there's a kind of natural link between where golf was initially played and the notion of a bunker. And when golf moved inland and golf architects began to practice their craft on land that maybe wasn't as well suited to golf or land that didn't have sandy soil, the bunkers remained a part of it. And as a kind of tribute to those original links courses, you know, but they don't necessarily sand bunkers don't necessarily belong on a clay based site. You know, why, yeah. why necessarily should they be there? It's just become this kind of convention that sand bunkers are, are part of golf. Now, I, I don't necessarily dislike that. I think that sand bunkers create a really interesting texture and variety to the surfaces that a golf course presents. And it's a loss to just get rid of them. I think sure, but it depends on the course and there are certainly courses that would do well to fill in bunkers that just don't need as many of them as they have. Or there are courses where grass bunkers would do the job as well. Um, and, and you'd hope that the way that they would maintain the turf of those grass bunkers wouldn't be like this, you know, perfect, evenly cut rough that we've become mm-hmm. accustomed to seeing. Cause that's yeah. just, that's just as bad as, as perfect sand, you know, like, uh, let, let it be, let it be a hazard. Right. But, um, you know, I, I also think that that tight turf is a good idea, but it, it does play completely differently. It has to be designed differently. It can't just be the scoop. Um, you know, the reason that golf courses often rely on bunkers is that they make the golf course interesting. Mm-hmm. And the reason that bunkers are the thing that makes a lot of golf courses interesting is that there's not a whole lot else going on that makes the golf course interesting. Right. You know, the best hazard or one of the best hazards in my opinion is just undulation contour in the ground, uh, well-shaped, you know, not hokey looking kind of mound contours, but, (laughs) but, you know, fun, unpredictable, surprising contours on and around the green, that that presents some challenges on the approach and on the play on and around the green. That's that's the good stuff, really. And but a lot of golf golf courses just lack that. They they don't they don't have that feature. And so they need bunkers to offer some challenge and some interest to the play. Um, and that's too bad. You know, I, I I think that it's a useful exercise for any golf course to consider what what would this be like without bunkers? Would it still be interesting? And if it's not, then maybe you need to work on your ground contour a little bit. Maybe there needs to be more of that. Um, and if uh, if there were more golf courses that had fun and interesting, unexpected ground contours, there wouldn't be as much of a reliance on bunkers. They, they just wouldn't be as big of a deal. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, t- totally, man. And uh, it, it really is a bummer that the bunkers do require as much time and financial resources as they do because... There's been so many golf courses. I'm sure it's exactly the same at a lot of places that you've played over the years where, you know, because they are so expensive, it seems to me like the first thing to go at a lot of, you know, affordable public golf is fairway bunkers. 
You know, like the, the golf course that I grew up playing, the golf course I got my very first job at when I was 14. You, you may even actually know it. It's uh, Bennett Valley in Santa Rosa. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, but my, my normal co-host, uh, you know, Jess Demack, he's he's the, one of the teaching professionals there. And, you know, it was once a very, really fun, uh, not to say it's not fun now, but there used to be fairway bunkers litter that, you know, made you have to play to a certain spot in the fairway. That golf course does not have a single fairway bunker left. You can still see the mounds where they used to be. And I, I find that to be the case more and more. I mean, Shoot, this is the second time I've mentioned Northwood in this podcast, but um, I mean, when you go around, you can see all of the bunkers, the cross bunkers and fairway bunkers yeah. that Mackenzie had, uh, you know, placed there originally. Every single one of them has been filled in. The only fairway bunker left on that entire golf course are those kind of two little sets of bunkers on the right side of one, and those are only maybe forty or fifty yards from the putting green. And right. you know, it, it's gotten to the point now where when I do go to play a you know municipal or a affordable public golf course, and I see a fairway bunker, I'm almost kind of in shock like wow they've really like this is awesome that they have had enough resources to actually preserve this to keep the tee shots a little interesting um not not to go off a little tangent but it's just i don't know to find some different alternatives would be fun and i i gotta think there's some more affordable ones out there and what comes to mind first and foremost is i again i get the two names confused so you have to apologize maybe you can correct me i don't i don't know if it's north barrick or if it's prestwick but whatever the courses that has the big rock or stone you know kind of fence that runs right along the green surface that people yeah, sort of have to play over it's north barrack thank you um is something like that i don't know is that feasible stateside where do you think the american golfer would find that to be as much fun as all the golfers who go travel all that way to play north barrack i mean to me I, you would think the one-time cost of building maybe a little fence or something an impediment of that sort next to a green surface as opposed to a bunker that would require a lot of maintenance maybe would be you know, a little bit more popular or a little more common, but I, I I've yet to see it. I, I don't know. Is that something that you consider to, as as a good alternative, or does that seem a little a little hokey? I think building one of those might be a little hokey. Okay. You know, it might be a little contrived just to build a stone. I don't know. You know, I, there there are <laughs> anything's fair game yeah. in, in golf architecture. Or dig dig you know, a boulder out of the ground somewhere and go flop it next to the green. I, I don't know. Just <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, there's there's so many options that the golf architects don't explore because they're afraid of being labeled as gimmicky or contrived. And so, you know, I don't want to be the person who would say, you know, that would never work because it might. Um, the thing that I think is appealing about the North Barrick Wall, and you know, I'm sure there will be people who would correct me if I'm wrong. I don't <laughs> exactly know the history, but I believe that, that wall was there before. Sure. Um, I, and, I would expect uh, so as well. And the golf course was built around it. And I, I think that the lesson that you learn from that is when you're building a golf course that you look at all the features of the land that you're presented as having potential and that you're not just clearing out everything uh, uh, indiscriminately that you're even looking at man-made features in the landscape and thinking, well, could this be part of the golf course? Because then you, then you start coming up with some really original ideas. Um, you know, the, the, to me, the natural landscape is, is always King and there's so much interesting stuff, the natural or man-made landscape, whatever landscape you're presented as you're building a golf course that that's really what uh, where the most unique ideas are going to come from. Now that's tough for golf courses that don't have a whole lot of natural features that are mm -hmm. built on sites that are are dull, you know. And that's a, that's a real problem there. And 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 maybe you need to start building stuff on those sites in order to make the golf interesting. But um, you know, I think that 
golf courses need to respect their their natural landscapes. There are a lot of golf courses built on great sites that don't take advantage of those sites very well. And um, and when you look at those sites and consider the features of them, then I, different ideas for hazards come about than just bunkers. You know, at some at a lot of California golf courses, for instance, I think that you know one of the blessings of the California landscape is that we have oak trees that that don't necessarily always grow in really thick clumps. Often mm-hmm. the trees are just kind of by themselves, isolated, and those can make really cool hazards if they're used well. Um, you know, there seems to be a, an overall opposition among golf course architecture nuts to the notion of trees, but I think that's overly simplistic. Sure. Sometimes isolated trees can make amazing hazards, and especially if they're indigenous to the landscape, they can. I think they can really add something totally. to the golf course. And so, when you have hazards like that, you 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 have less reliance on artificial bunkering, um, and uh, you know there are just any number of possibilities that a given landscape presents for constructing hazards but i I think the the most important one and the one that is ironically sadly the most underused is natural contour and slope Um, that that's really the the soul of of the challenge of a game played on the ground and um you know uh in the absence of significant bunkering fairway bunkering especially if the site has cool natural slope and contour, then that's really all you need. You know, there, there are a lot of older courses um, where uh, architects weren't as able to do work on the land. You know, they, they had less funds to do a lot of shaping. Mm-hmm. And so they focused all that effort on the green sites, contouring the green sites and building the bunkers around the green and, uh, and doing all that stuff and left the fairways more or less natural. But, uh, you know, th- but the reason that those golf courses remain interesting is that the architects were able to route the golf course, the, the golf holes over the land in a way that made tee shots interesting without fairway bunkering, hmm. um, just because of the, the shape of the land. Sure. Um, I think that that's an underrated factor in in a lot of Seth Rayner courses and Langford and Moreau courses in the Midwest. You know, a, a lot of people focus on those green sites and look look how artificial, look how made those are, shaped by a steam shovel. Well, go back and look at the fairways. Often there aren't many fairway bunkers. <laughs> Often those fairways are sitting really naturally on the land and are are generating some some interest and intrigue through the contour. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that that's the, that's the way to, to make tee shots, uh, interesting. That's not to say fairway bunkers are bad or anything like that, but in the absence of fairway bunkers, if you're saying like, we can only have so many bunkers on this course that we can maintain due to the maintenance budget, there are so many options arising from the landscape of your golf course that could make the golf fun aside from bunkers. Yeah. No man, I, I I completely agree, and honestly, I, I feel like we could we could stay on this topic for what, what do you think five six it's more hours? <laughs> yeah, <It's a> big, <laughs> and then never yeah. run out of stuff to talk about. But uh, in the interest of time, I, I know you got stuff to do, man. So I'll I'll start to wrap things up here. I guess my last question, and this one's a little more fun. We're kind of go off the beat, you know, kind of stray away from this topic just a little bit. But you did mention the Sheep Ranch, um, which obviously is going to be opening in June of 2020, the fifth 18 hole golf course of Anna Dunes. My, um, you know, certainly my favorite place. Uh, I don't know if I could say on earth, but it, it's up there. 
Um, oh yeah. Now, did I see on social media that you've actually already had an opportunity to go and sh- and check out the the new Sheep Ranch site with uh, with somebody? Uh, yeah, I, I did go out and see Sheep Ranch um, and got to walk around there early in the morning and play the nine preview holes that were open. Um, and, uh, and it's, you know, obviously a, a, a pretty compelling place. Yeah. Had you been out to see the, the casual course that was out there before? Kyle? I, I did. So, uh, in 2015, I played the sheep ranch with a couple of buddies on the tail end of one of our annual trips to Bannon and was just awestruck. I mean, it was, it was just so unlike anything I'd ever played before much very similar reaction to probably what most everybody who had a chance to play it beforehand was where it's just it it was so special and intimate and unique um that when I heard it was being redone I actually just <laughs> I knew what Mike Kaiser was capable of and I I was I was such a huge fan of everything that Bannon has done not just on that property but the effect that it's actually had on golf architecture and you know just you know, golf development across the country um, that I knew if Mike Kaiser was going to come in and build an 18 hole course there, I knew it was going to be really, really special. And so I wasn't quite as bummed, I guess, as some of my buddies that I played it with that were just like, no, this is, this has to stay like this. Like there's just nothing else like this. It's not going to be a special. And I, I certainly think there are compelling arguments for both sides, but, um, I, I did have a chance to play it, but I'd be lying to you, man, if I said that I'm not over the moon excited, um, about what this sheep branch course could do. In large part because you know it's going to be a great test to see how the public reacts to a golf course without any bunkers, especially a golf course on a site that I think a lot of us would probably say is maybe one of the handful of the best pieces of property that anybody's had a chance to build a golf course on. You know, are are there twenty five sites in America that are better than what the Sheep Ranch is on? I I don't know. It's up there. I mean, it's a remarkable and unique site. Um, I, I think that. When a new course opens at one of these resorts, we often forget about the virtues of the old courses at that resort. Mm-hmm. And I think that the land at Pacific Dunes, Bandon Dunes, and Bandon Trails especially is so incredible. Oh. And especially at Pacific Dunes, I mean, that, that topography is amazing. And it's not just – it's not about the cliffs, right? It's about no. the interior of the property – and how awesome it is. That is great land. Mm-hmm. Sheep Ranch has great land too. I mean, obviously it's it's incredible. And the cliffside property is going to stun people. You know, it's spectacular. The cliffs are higher. There are more holes on the cliffs, all that kind of stuff. But that does not mean it's a better site. The interior of the property at Sheep Ranch is really, really cool. Yes. You know. It's cooler than 99.9% of golf properties <laughs> in the world. But the interior of that property is not better than Pacific Dunes' interior. It's yeah. just not. And and so and that's fine. It's a different site. And that's not a criticism of the golf course necessarily. It's just to say that, you know, uh we, we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves here. Okay. Uh the golf course isn't isn't quite finished yet, and so I I I don't know fully what it's going to be. It's going to be amazing. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I would not be, you know, after my visit, I, I would say that it has a lot of work to do to get on the level of Pacific dunes or, or banded trails and it, mm-hmm. it might very well get there. Uh, but, uh, but I, I wouldn't go that far. Um, but it is a really cool place for golf and, and it, it is different from 
the other properties at Bandon Dunes because it is exposed. It's going to get so windy up there. And I think that the golf course is being built in a way that's really smart for that level of exposure to the Mm -hmm. wind. There's a lot of room to play out there. Uh, There's a lot of kind of fun micro contour in the land, especially leading into the greens where, uh, you know, because you might be playing your ball close to the ground a lot because it's just going to be in your golf ball is going to go backwards if you you hit it up into the wind there. Uh, If you're playing your ball close to the ground, it's going to roll along the ground nicely. It's going to be fescue turf. It's going to be nice and firm. And there are lots of interesting small contours that your ball is going to go over. But, um, you know, but, I, you know, in, in playing the course, I, I think people will really enjoy it. They'll think it's incredible that the cliffside stuff is is going to be remarkable to people. But let's not forget what Pacific Dunes is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, yeah. basically the greatest golf course in the world. It, it, uh, the Sheep Ranch has got a long way to, to get to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, you know what, man? It's uh, thank you for uh, for helping me slow my roll a little bit because, <laughs> I mean, it it's just it's so crazy how good Pacific Dunes is. I mean, I it it for me it is the best public golf course I have ever played, and I by a mile. And I I've been lucky enough to play Pebble, and that's no not really a knock on Pebble. It's just a testament to how unbelievable Pacific Dunes is. Um, now I, I know with all the rankings that have just come out, you know, I'm not asking you to to rank them per se, but just in your personal opinion, based on what you saw at the Sheep Ranch. Do you think it has a chance to elevate itself above any of the four existing courses in terms of your personal favorites to play? I don't really know because I, I played nine holes. There are holes that were still being uh, grown in while while I was there, and you know I've I've seen people coming back from a preview visit at Sheep Ranch and ranking it, and I've I've sort of scoffed at that <laughs> because <laughs> I mean like how can you rake the court it's not open yet what if the nine and, holes and, dog shit I don't know no, the, not, the, not and the nine <laughs> holes that I played were fantastic you know really really good it, it, it's a, a Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw golf course uh, they, they have a really good batting percentage and, yes um, but but one of the things that I think is is great about Core and Crenshaw courses is that the finish work is always super on point and very interesting. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that I love about Bandon Trails is that that golf course is lovingly united with its landscape, and uh, and and that for me is a huge part of the experience out there that I would not have seen if I had visited the golf course as it was growing in. Right, right. The, the finish work wouldn't have been there yet. And so that wouldn't have been part of the experience. And for me, that's that's such a huge thing now at Bandon Trails. And so especially since Corin Crenshaw are doing the work out there, I know that the finish work at Sheep Ranch is going to be really cool. And I'm waiting to see that in order to determine where where it would sit in my personal rankings. And my personal rankings shift all the time. For me right now... Uh, <laughs> Pacific Dunes and, and Bandon Trails would would be up at the top, uh, and Bandon Dunes would be you know, maybe just below that, and, and then Old McDonald. And I would say that Sheep Ranch, I wouldn't be surprised if it fit somewhere in the uh, for me in the Bandon Dunes Old McDonald area of that ranking. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, again, I haven't seen the thing at Sheep Ranch that. I tend to appreciate most even at core and Crenshaw courses, which is the, the way that they are tied in, um, and to, to the surrounding, um, terrain. Uh, not all of that has been finished at sheep ranch. And I bet 
that there's going to be some cool stuff to see. Uh, so yeah, I'm 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 really looking forward to seeing the the finished product. But you know, I I don't I think that often when when there's when somebody says that a new destination resort course built by Corin Crenshaw, developed by Mike Kaiser is not necessarily going to be the greatest course in the world that that gets interpreted <laughs> as some kind of severe <laughs> biting <shot>. criticism. Yeah. <laughs> to be clear, it's incredible. Yeah. The Sheep Ranch is going to be awesome. Yeah. You're going to love it. Um, yeah, but I'm I'm trying to chart a, a moderate course here. A like, yes. <laughs> you know, let's let's try to recognize what this course actually is, what its what its capacity is. The the property is um, you know, it just doesn't have quite the potential that Pacific Dunes' property is, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Sheep Ranch isn't gonna you know get the absolute most out of it and be amazing and unique in its own right. Yeah, I I, I tell you, man, I, I think it's a, a really smart uh, smart move on your part. I will try to temper some of my expectations. I I'm I'm all I'm all in on Bannerite. I'm I'm four days away from me and 27, 27 of my degenerate buddies heading up for our annual trip uh, the day after Thanksgiving, and so a lot of people. I, are you going to go out and see Sheep Ranch? Or are you I, am, have that, I am. That opportunity? I do. I, I got a uh, I got a tour scheduled for Monday morning, so I'm I'm really Sweet. really excited to check it out. I'm honestly I'm actually excited to check it out and then touch base with you again to kind of just kind of compare notes and sort of see you know share some of my observations and and you know. Once I finally get a chance to see it with my own two eyes, I'll be very curious to talk to people that also have had that same, uh, enjoyed that same experience, and kind of see what everybody is thinking in terms of how it's progressing. And so it should be, it should be fantastic, man. I, I can't Absolutely, wait. Man. Um, yeah. yeah, that'll be awesome. Well, uh, looking forward to hearing what you have to say about. Yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, me too, man. Uh, well, I'm not looking forward to what I have to say. I'm looking forward to hear what you have to say from what I have to say. <laughs> anyway, uh, on that note, Garrett, thank you so much for uh, for taking uh, all this time, man. I know we ran a little long, but. Shit, man! Interesting conversations. They just—they have a way of just, uh, you know, getting in mind of their own. And so, I loved it, man. Uh, for anybody out there that is not doing so already, Garrett, where can they find you both on social media and where can they read your work for the Friday? Sure. So uh, on Twitter, I'm at G Ford Golf F O R D G Ford Golf. Mm-hmm. Uh, same handle on Instagram, and uh, I write and edit thefriedegg.com. Uh, we have a uh, a newsletter that goes out uh, three three times a week, and we have a couple of podcasts: the Shotgun Start and the Fried Egg Podcast. Uh, and uh, and yeah, if you're interested in, in golf architecture, then uh, those are some things to check out. Yes, everybody, I read and listen to the Fried Egg po- you know products uh, quite a bit. They're they're an amazing resource. A lot of really really well thought out stuff, uh, both from Andy. Uh, you know, Garrett, Will Knights, who we were talking about before the podcast, they, they do a really, really good job. So if that is something that, uh, that piques your interest, I wholeheartedly endorse you go check it out. Um, Garrett, thank you, my friend. This was awesome. I'm, shoot, man, I'm already looking forward to doing it again soon. Thank you. Appreciate it, Kyle. Anytime. Awesome. You got it. Thanks so much, Garrett. Thank you again to Garrett for a sensational, sensational conversation. Um, I just want to remind you guys, if you want to support the Golf Guide podcast, the best way to do so is to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. If you do that, it is much appreciated. So thank you so much for that. Uh, Also, just one last reminder that if you want to get a free subscription to Pacific Coast Golf Guide magazine, just go ahead and visit the show notes of this podcast. Click on the free subscription link and voila. A couple questions, a mailing address gets put in there and bam, you are all set to go. Uh, The only other thing is if you like playing golf at a discounted rate, uh, and you live somewhere around Northern California, go to golfguide.net. Uh, 
find, find some greens feeds or some golf courses that look uh, appetizing to you and enter the promo code GGPODCAST to receive 10% off your order. Bam. That was it. That, that, that was awesome. So, everybody, thank you again. Have a wonderful holiday. Um, I wish you and your family all the best. And until next time, adios. Adios.